And then if we're going to pretend that this 0.005 threshold fixes everything, then we might actually make the problem a bit worse because people are like, but now now it's true, right? Now it's true because now I have this new threshold. Come on, people. When is it good enough? This new threshold is now proof that my theory is true, right? We didn't fix the problem underlying the misinterpretation of p-values and all this thing. It's just that people are now more convinced that what can still be complete flukes are true. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University, and we are joined by our first returning guest, Daniel Larkins from the Eindhoven University of Technology. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. Great to be here, guys. I missed you. I missed you so much. <laughs> well, a lot's changed since you were first uh, first on here uh, on, on the show. Uh, I think one of the things is one of your new PhD students is our former guest, Anne Scheel. That, that's now, my only selection criteria for PhD students, I have to admit. Yeah. They have to be on the show. Now, I'm, I'm sure you, you basically hired her after just hearing her on, on the show, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, again, so- it's the only thing that matters. <laughs> so future students um you know <laughs> if, if there's a call for, for for a new position in daniel's lab then uh yeah give us give us a call well back in um episode 49 we were discussing a paper from uh benjamin and colleagues that was arguing that we should change the conventional statistical significance threshold from 0.05 to 0.005 and since then we've had a paper from mcshane and colleagues which also includes andrew gelman which proposes to abandon statistical significance, the uh, the scorched earth policy. And uh, along with that, we have a paper led by yourself, Daniel, Justify Your Alpha. So I was wondering, why did you and your 87 co-authors feel the need to respond to the original paper from Benjamin and mm. colleagues? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting how this went. So I've written a, a blog post years ago based on an earlier recommendation to reduce the alpha level, which is titled something like why psychologists should ignore recommendations to uh, lower the alpha level. And then when this um, paper came out, there were all these people on Twitter saying, well, Daniel, don't you want to respond? And I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to respond, but there were so many requests. I thought, you know what, I'll open a Google Doc and then we can just have a discussion and we'll see. And, And actually, I had some discussion points. And the first point was, should we respond? And well, the majority of people who contributed there on the discussion said, yes, yes, this is important enough to write a response because we really think that this is not a very solid recommendation. Yeah, take that all 76 of you. (laughs) (laughs) This is like dueling banjos. You're turning into CERN. (laughs) It's, It's interesting. It's interesting. So, I mean, this is one of the first times probably for me personally that Uh, A lot of my close colleagues and and several very good friends who are on the other paper (laughs) say something that I actually think, no, no, I don't don't agree. I don't agree at all with this recommendation. How can you say this? And it's very interesting to to have this, well, you know, it might be a minor thing, like where are we going to put alpha levels and what do we do with this, you know. Uh, But it's interesting to be uh, in a disagreement with some people that we share probably like 95% of uh, our uh, convictions about where science should go. We share most of these ideas. But this is one, uh, yeah, one thing where we actually slightly disagree so it's interesting to be on opposite sides uh, in an argument for once mm. and and of course we're going to link to the uh, link to the paper which is uh, currently a preprint 
Um, but uh, would you mind just giving us the basic gist of your response to uh, the the original paper? Sure. So I think the major concern we had is if you're going to use this momentum that there is in science to make a change, and I agree that the original authors are taking the momentum and saying, you know, people think that something should change. And I agree. So we're not saying uh, sticking with this mindless use of 0.05 as as a criteria is is a good thing. But if you're going to take this momentum to make a change, propose a change, you shouldn't have this band-aid that you stick on this problem and say, well, let's just lower the alpha level uh, and then everything will be better. Uh, No, you probably want to take this moment to say, well, Let's really think about what the best thing is for science and teach people to do the right thing. Um, And I think that's sort of the difference between the two approaches. So if you look at the uh, paper that suggests to lower the alpha level to 0.05, it's sort of like, well, this is easy. It's simple. You just have a lower threshold. Everybody can do this. And we're suggesting something that's a little bit crazy in science. We're suggesting people (laughs) to think about what they're going to (laughs) do. No, oh no, God. no, oh no, 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 pull it, pull it off. That's not going to work. Get that pot off the stove. Yeah, there you We're go, not having you. thinking. Where's my mindless reflexive criteria, Dr. Larkins? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to, to say that that's not a good idea. But, you know, so, th- so we, we have this moment, momentum to do something. And then I would say, okay, now let's, let's do something that statisticians and researchers have actually been saying we should be doing for years and years and decades. Let's give it a try. Yeah. Well, it seems, that's that's reasonable from that perspective. So, the, the, one of the, the the differences that you'd you'd characterize here is that every everyone essentially agrees that the way we do mindless significance testing now is shite. Mm-hmm. That is not a new argument from anyone's perspective, and we don't need to go into the historical context of it. So, what you're talking about in one sense is a matter of degree. If, if we're going to go to the rather momentous position of trying to change this thing, mm-hmm. as much as we've been taking good hefty kicks in its ass for about 80 years, what precisely should it be changed to? If you're pr- yeah. proposing something where it needs to be overturned in the first instance, don't make some kind of incremental change, exactly. but try to replace it from scratch. Yeah, and and, a, and, and a go to the right thing, the right thing, the end state where you want to end up. And I do think that there, there's probably n- not so much disagreement about that our proposal is actually the right end state. Of course, people should carefully think about what they do and they don't follow a, a single rule blindly without knowing why they do this thing. No, they should be able to justify their choices. Um yeah, so I, I think that's not a disagreement as well. But maybe the question is, can people do this? Which is a very interesting question. I think so, now now that there's more, it, it's going to become easier and there's a lot more platforms in place for this to become easier, um, particularly with the advent of things like uh, Open Science Framework where people can actually um, explain the justifications for, for, for why they're doing this. Um, so the time is ripe. Um, but it still is difficult for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Even the concept of uh, of doing this and, and, and thinking about this is, is yeah. going to be very tricky. Um, yeah, and, and that's, a- that's also, I think, maybe the limitation of our suggestion. So we, we put in some references to some papers that say, well, if you start justifying your alpha level, this might be one approach. But you know how ridiculously little real-life examples there are of people actually thinking about what they're doing in this respect? It's It's amazing. 
there's almost nothing to go on. So that's the weakness of our proposal. We're saying, yeah, you should justify it, but there's so very little people who actually justify their choices. Well, I think that's what the benefit of registered reports are in this circumstance, because say you can come out and you can put a justification for this is why we're going to pick this particular level, um, then the reviewers of the registered report will go, well, I think you're a bit off, or you know, I think you're actually spot on here, or have you considered this? And you can almost get a uh, kind of a consensus approach of going, well, I think you've actually hit the right mark here. But that can only come through registered reports, or if you actually put it out there as a preprint and people can make comments going, you know, you're way off or you're not way off. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, oh, the the amount of times I, I I'm reading a paper where they're going, oh, we predicted this four four way interaction with 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 twenty participants. I'm like, come on. Mm. But you know, if you're actually um, justifying it early on, mm. um, and you have people agreeing with it, um, then that's going to be a big help in yeah. in that circumstance. Yeah, so that's also exactly what we recommend in our commentary, that we now have these registered reports so people can actually make use of them and have this debate before they collect the data with reviewers and editors or whoever wants to be involved or through a preprint. So you say, okay, this is my my proposal. This is why I'm going to do this. And then people can say, yeah, makes sense, doesn't make sense. And even though there's not so much work on this now, I think we've seen a huge amount of progress about certain topics. People have been incorporating all sorts of new reasoning in their their, uh, research designs, like sample size justification. And there was not a lot about this as well. And you see a huge amount of papers coming out, people proposing good suggestions in a relatively short amount of time. And things are changing. People keep saying, oh, science is too slow. But even in the past few years when I've been reviewing reviewing papers, Mm -hmm. three years ago, I'd almost always say, how did you justify your sample size? Now, maybe half of the papers I need to do that with the other half actually going, this is our sample sizes, our power analysis, and this is exactly what we did. So things are changing. I think we can mm-hmm. be a bit too pessimistic sometimes. <laughs> we, we, see, we see that lol you know yeah. paper on Twitter and we're thinking you know nothing's changing. But when you look at this, uh, when you look at everything as a whole, I think things mm-hmm. are actually getting a bit better. I completely agree. And also, um, so I've been joking also on, on social media that where you are in this debate, whether you want to use the simplistic thre- new lower threshold or whether you expect people are actually capable of justifying, is sort of like a one uh, item question of whether you're a pessimist about where science is going or an optimist. <laughs> That's good. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm an optimist also because, you know, I spend a lot of my time teaching very, uh, you know, the young and upcoming generation of researchers. And I see so many of them fully embracing all these uh, ideas and wanting to do better and wanting to be able to justify their choices. I'm, I'm really an optimist in this, uh, this side of the debate, yeah. I think it's fantastic. And um, one of um, the thanks to your Coursera course, I've actually got a new, a new PhD student that's just started a few weeks ago. And mm-hmm. uh, before, before he started, he's like, what can I do to get started? And I'm like, you've got to get onto Lakin's course. And <laughs> uh, we, we, were, we were sitting in a seminar t- uh, two weeks ago and someone was talking and, um, you know, they, uh, I, f- I forgot what they said, but I, he, he put his hand up and, and, and made a mention. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's probably something straight from, uh, straight from Daniel's course. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it, it's, great, it's great that we have that there. Um, but um, but back, to the, back to the paper, um, back to your paper in particular, one, one perspective that I really like uh, is this idea that lowering the threshold will... Well, I don't really like this, but you, you raise it that lowering the threshold will actually mean less replication studies. Mm. Um, I mean, when, when you think about it, researchers only have finite resources. So for the cost of 1.005 study, you can actually run 2.05 studies. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, I would be so much more impressed with two pre-registered studies of 0.05 
mm. than one study at point zero zero five any time of the day. So I think mm. that really suits the perspective that you've, you've that you've taken in this paper. Mm-hmm. I find this is an interesting discussion to have with statisticians, by the way, because opinions on this matter are are uh, yeah, on uh, there there are different different opinions, and for a real statistician. Well, no, not a real statistician, but for some <laughs> statisticians, they'll be like, this doesn't matter. Why are two studies more important than one? If the sample size is twice as big in the single study, it's exactly the same as if this sample size was spread out over two studies. But then if you ask a lot of researchers, they are more convinced if two studies show the same thing compared to one study. So there is this interesting difference how we define evidence. And some people have an extremely focused definition of evidence, which is based on the data and only the number of participants, that's all. And there are some people who include additional things, like, oh, this lab found it and this lab found it. Oh, that's, for me, more convincing. And and I'm on your side. I agree that this is more convincing. It's actually not a clear and cut case. So you can have different opinions about this. But I agree. I would rather have two studies showing something than a single study. And it's also interesting that things like the FDA, so the Food and Drug um, Association or Authority, what is it? Um, they, they also have this recommendation of having two studies showing showing an effect. And not, well, you can have one big study in some, ex, you know, some circumstances, but they also like two studies to show this effect. Yeah. I mean, well, for it's, me... It's the difference between... It's a difference between research theory and research practice. If you accept that there are elements of a study that you can't measure, that are not immediately amenable to understanding, the fact that you went and did it all again in a potentially different environment with different code, with different analysis, with different people, with different reagents, with different drugs, with different equipment, etc. And all of the normal fuzz of being able to access a propositional piece of knowledge in the first place is notwithstanding to the result Mm -hmm. then you're not talking about a it's not simply a matter of let us aggregate all of these numbers because the numbers are the same thing they're not the same thing because they come from different observational environments even if it's done with an enormous amount of them the same uh, I, I remember stories where psychologists would run experiments in different parts of the semester. So the people who, and obviously uh, this is in a in a psychology department where the there are thirteen weeks of the semester, and people who do first year psychology studies sign up to do experiments. If you run an experiment in the first sort of week one to week three. You used to get what people called the good students, as in the diligent people. And what they really, what they really wanted to do was get their research requirements out of the way, learn something, tick the box, and fuck off. Yeah. When you ran it in weeks ten to thirteen, you had someone turning up in a pair of squash shorts with a with one flip flop on and a, like a, a, a hat that was backwards with some of their hair in their ear, going, "Dude, is this the room for the experiment?" No. Yeah. Same environment, same people, some of the same questions. But if it's not an experiment that's explicitly about conscientiousness, what's going to happen to your reaction time task? What's going to happen to your measurement of social cognition, etc., etc.? Two bytes is two different contexts, and two bytes from completely different people 
is to even more different contexts. This is why we're continually arguing about whether or not something is generalizable. Yeah, yeah. And and beyond that, I think it's an interesting question. So I, I like this metaphor in this context where you, you treat doing the amount of uh, studies, uh, you, you treat it sort of like uh, driving, driving speed. So, you know, the, the new recommendation is sort of like, uh, well, if we lower, lower the maximum driving speed 10, 10 times, we're going to get a lot less accidents. And that's completely true. I mean, they're right. You know, if you lower the driving speed or the alpha level, there are going to be less errors in the system. That, that is a fact. But at the same time, we don't lower the driving speed by 10 times. I mean, we wouldn't get anywhere. And uh, besides not getting anywhere, sometimes just for fun, I like to, you know, I'm okay with, you know, going out and driving a bit faster. That's fine. So in general, we should try to move towards more of a cost benefit analysis like what what's the what's the risk of an error and how severe is an error and sometimes this risk is really high and we should choose a much lower alpha level there are well known cases where this one study showing a link between vaccinations and autism messes up people's behavior for the next two decades well we should have lowered the alpha because it has huge costs if we make an error in this context but I can also look at some of my own research and I can be very honest. If I make a mistake in some of my studies, it's definitely not the end of the world. Not a lot of people are going to be upset. Um, you know, so we can have these trade-offs. I think it's fine. Yeah. Hmm. I'll give hmm. you a good example of a, uh, an alpha recommendation. There's a, a, a thing in cardiology where there are continual arguments about who you should and should not give beta blockers too and there was a researcher who was eventually done over quite heavily for fraud whose name starts with p but escapes me completely he's been drummed out of the academic community and is probably filling ditches in swaziland by now but he he came up with two uh two very large either uh, i think i think they were i think they were clinical trials he came up with two clinical trials that were very poorly conducted mm -hmm. and when they were put into the European cardiological formal guidelines that everyone accepted, they changed the nature of, should we include this uh, drug recommendation in the formal protocol or not? When you include his studies, the evidence is unclear. When you take his studies out, uh, the evidence says that they're dangerous. Mm. Now, this paper was withdrawn immediately because it was super controversial, but someone estimated that if you have, because including these things ended up changing the guidelines mm -hmm. or, or changing whether or not the guidelines were supposed to be updated, they potentially killed about 800,000 people. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's not a firm figure. That's an estimate from a study that was quite controversial, but it changes your perspective on where should we set the criteria for proof of really important shit mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and for most of these situations we should definitely lower the alpha right the situation you describe is a perfect case where we should lower it probably even lower than 0 0.005 right and we should invest a little bit more money and make sure that the difference in sample size is in a certain sense even modest i think I'm not completely sure, but I did some calculations for, do you know, the five sigma threshold that's used in uh, in, in uh, physics? Manufacturing. Yeah. Oh, no, but sorry. Physics as well. So if, if they have the 
if they write a paper with we discovered the Higgs boson, the discovery in the title, then they have to have five yeah. sigma level. It it I think it increases the sample size you need four times. No, that's not crazy. We can do that for certain very important findings. We can have a really, really small error rate. So let's do this. But also let's get together and think where we need this, where we don't need this, and think carefully about the consequences. Um, and and that's you know that's maybe the main reason why we should be a little bit careful by with uh, uh, introducing completely new uh, guidelines in this already you know, not perfectly operating scientific system of reward structures. It's it's a little risky to just say, let's introduce this new threshold throughout science and it will be a good thing. How do we know? I mean, you know, I don't want to be the person who says, oh, it's so risky, who knows, there might be a disaster. But, but in this case, you know, how much are we getting and how much is it costing? And I don't see a careful analysis of this. So how can we, you know, we should have a sort of evidence-based implementation of new threshold if we have it. So where is the evidence? Well, it's not strong enough in this case to implement a new threshold. So take it easy. You know, give me the evidence. Then I'm convinced. But in this case, I can come up with many serious reasons why we should doubt uh, introducing this new threshold at this moment and probably good theoretical reasons why you shouldn't have a single threshold, you know. Altogether, well, so. it's a it's a very difficult place to gather evidence. You'd have to get a journal or a group of journals who agreed to change practice, and then yeah. you'd have to spend years trying to uncover the implications of what happened relevant to your field as it relates to measurement and statistical investigation. True. That's a that's bigger than a normal study where you just uh, you, you 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 fire up your spiders and suck a few values off and do some bullshit meta analysis. You're yeah, affecting the true. results of research and yeah. and practice, and you're changing potentially the outcomes that are changing people's careers and how the evidence is presented. So mm. you would the the best way you could the, the best way you could do that is start the journal of strong results mm. and see how they fare <laughs> over time you'd have to do something rather than sort of change the existing structures yeah seriously well, the journal it's, it's, journal of big honking p values <laughs> well that would be an interesting journal to read actually i mean you know it's fine we have we have a, a journal that bans p values and you can take a look what happens there so I'd, I'd be more than happy to have some journal say you know what we're gonna do this fine maybe not every journal but i'm more than happy to see what happens if one or two journals try this out sure go for it now, yeah, I think well, uh, it, there's going to be areas that will find that more or less scary than others, obviously. Mm. But um, I, it, it wouldn't be. Uh, I, I don't think a. Dan, what do, what do you think? Do you think a, 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 a? I don't think a physiology journal would have the slightest problem with with any of that. That would that, um, would, that would give it a go. Some, sometimes the effects are pretty obvious and sort of big honking effects. But mm. um, I just don't even know if they're that concerned about this kind of stuff, though. Mm. Unfortunately. But I also, I also wonder if all fields would, you know, if this would be a fix for all fields. So I talked to some people, like my other PhD student, who is also a big fan and says hi, uh, Peter Isager. Uh, and he uh, says, well, in neuroscience, I'm not sure if uh, setting this threshold to 0.005 is going to fix all the problems because I'm pretty sure we can, you know, get a lot of significant results even with this threshold. It's not uh, going to prevent most people yeah. of publishing bullshit, to be honest. 
Well, I, I think, think I, 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 they get into a sort of a heuristic thing. I feel where you just read the read the t values off for comparison tables, mm. and you, you you that's kind of like your proxy p values. You go, oh, three and a half, oh, not too bad. Four, four and a half. Now we're talking. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's just an easier way to sum up the size of the comparisons rather mm. than, than talking about sigma levels or and then, fucking log p-values. Yeah, and then if we're going to pretend that this 0.005 threshold fixes everything, then we might actually make the problem a bit worse because people are like, but now now it's true, right? Now it's true because now I have this new threshold. Come on, people. When is it good enough? This new threshold is now proof that my theory is true, right? We didn't fix the problem underlying the misinterpretation of p-values and all this thing. It's just that people are now more convinced that what can still be complete flukes are true. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting approach. Um we, we we might even uh, I mean it might be nice to discuss some of the additional papers. So there are also some some suggestions to just go remove the th- uh, th- testing uh, business altogether, abandon significance, statistical significance, or uh, well, what do you think about those uh, suggestions? No no significance testing at all. Ah, uh, <laughs> no no significance testing or no idea of criticality whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are two different things. So uh, no, yeah. no cutoff, no hard cutoff. I think you know. Well, that- I think I think one of the main the main criticisms in, in in that paper from McShane and 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 colleagues, it really stems from this um the, these criticisms centered on the dichotomization of the p value that you're either aiming for yes or you're aiming for no, mm. and it seems to ignore and and it seems to ignore this idea that well no it can actually fit. At least with the frequentist framework, you can actually fit these effects within within a continuum of we have a small effect or we have a large effect. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I do I do see where they're getting at, where you know a lot of people have this mindset and they all, almost have this idea that a significant value is can be very much different than a non significant value. Yeah. Um, but I think that sort of missing the point a little bit, or sort of that that's one perspective of how people are, people are approaching this, rather than actually looking at more of a. Um, uh, an effect size problem. Mm. Um, mm. Oh, I don't know. Like it, it, it seems like quite a quite a quite a large reaction. Um, but um, and it, it will, in a sense, make people make people you know think about their approaches and think about what they're doing. Mm. But um, uh, I don't know. Um, look, look. They they said they they quote in their article. We believe it's entirely acceptable to publish an article featuring a result with a p value of 0.02 or 90 percent confidence interval that includes zero, provided that it's relevant to a theory or an applied question of interest, and the interpretation is sufficiently accurate. Hmm. The thing is, people are going to do all sorts of crazy post hoc gymnastics to justify why such an effect is relevant to a theory or to this uh, applied question of interest. Hmm. Um, you know, in some circumstances, these implications are clear if you're looking at an intervention to reduce mortality or, or what have you. Um, but, um, you know, I think it, this this circles back to it's just easier just to justify to begin with. Because mm. mm-hmm. if you're sort of getting these effects and you're going, well, you know, these effects are normal, then people are just going to be trying to justify whatever they're doing unless it's, unless it's really clear. Mm. Well, one of the things I like about recommending the justification approach is you force people to think about this. They have to. If they have to justify it, you force people to think about things. And, uh, you know, they'll learn a little bit and you prevent this uh, incorrect dichotomous interpretation of p-values. And uh, people will be like, well, yeah, of course, there's more to it. We should interpret effect sizes and all these things. So, you know, uh, sort of, overall general approach of just raising the level of statistical inferences a little bit uh, will probably have much bigger consequences than 
tweaking one simple thing and yeah so so it's it's interesting there's there's at the moment there's a conference about uh, statistics from the American Statistical Association and yeah you have all these people who've been debating how to fix statistics for 40 years and then uh, <laughs> yeah, they didn't really manage and now they're like well how are we really going to fix it this time I'm like well i'm not sure it probably will be really difficult but general education just has to inc- you know improve a lot we just have to teach people much better statistics and uh, reviewers editors it's so important to really try to improve statistics knowledge and research knowledge in general like theorization is just as important to improve uh, you know so yeah oh yeah <laughs> let's not get into our prejudices on that one <laughs> well we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we are going to hear more about how um how daniel practically got together 88 authors and published this paper we'll be back soon Everything hurts. Uh, today we are joined by special guest Daniel Larkins, and we are talking about his recent paper, which was a response to a paper that came out a few months ago about lowering the significance threshold. Uh, thanks for your support on uh, on Twitter and social media. A lot of great feedback from our last episode. Uh, special shout out to um, Lincoln Tracy, who's been uh, has been listening quite a while. Uh, we've, we've also had a, a, a lot of people. Oh in- shit, Lincoln! Hi, yeah. Lincoln. Hey, hey. <laughs> Sorry about all the data stuff, man. We'll have a better go next time. Um, never mind. That was out of context, but it doesn't matter. I'm sure he'll know. But uh, we've actually had some very interesting requests uh, for, for, for people that would totally pay for... Um, right, now, right now, you can't see listeners, but James is, is vaping away with his... No, little, I'm not. He's all vape. Well, he, he was he was 20 seconds ago. Uh, and and it's people, pronounced vape. Vape. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people have been saying that, uh, that would literally pay for you to, uh, to, to, to record this. The vaping outtakes... Which was what uh, Martin Dahlberg said as as a form of ASMR. Uh, Remy Gao well, as well as uh, would would also be keen to to listen to twenty minutes of James vaping. And a, a special shout out to Remy. Both who, of you are sick. <laughs> a special shout out to Remy who, um, who who gave a nice rundown of a few episodes and a few things that he liked about um, some of the stuff that um, that he's been he's been listening. But uh, yeah, great uh, great episode with Jessica Polka. We were talking preprint, so if you haven't had a listen, make sure. Yeah, that you, was good. Make sure you uh, you you listen back uh, to that episode. But uh, yeah, keep on sending the uh, keep on sending the the suggestions through. Uh, a lot of people recommending us to their friends on Twitter. Uh, Doctor PMS has uh, has been giving us some love online, recommending um, uh, the, the the podcast to people that uh, that would. Uh, that would she thinks would enjoy it so yeah we, we love it and uh if you want to actually uh follow our daniel on twitter he is at larkins very easy very easy username so you can uh, yeah, you he can got in early didn't he <laughs> got in got in very early 
So yeah, uh, but today we uh, we are talking about uh, Daniel's paper, and I just wanted to ask you, Daniel, more no, about no, the no, 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 no. We've got to do some quick fire fun questions. I got quick questions for Daniel. <laughs> All right, ready? Three, two, one, go. Why'd you cut your hair? <laughs> Because my wife is upset with all the hair flying around our living room. That's how it oh, works. Oh, mine too. That's how it works. You know oh. how they are. You know how they are. We, we love them the, anyway. We the, love them anyway. Did so you we, do you know. the drain thing? Um, it's more just, you know, everywhere, basically. Not limited to the drain. Oh, everywhere. Yeah. Hair well, we've got a cat, so that doesn't, that doesn't uh, count. Now, no. why are you wearing a plain blue shirt? You should be dressed like a Mondrian <laughs> tablecloth threw up on a German exchange student, but yeah. you're wearing a plain blue shirt, disappointing me personally. What's the story? Sorry. Yeah, I know. This is like a teaching outfit. Teaching outfit. More, a little bit more subdued for the, for the first-year students. Yeah. All right. Fair sorry enough. For, sorry yeah, they're, for the they're disappointment. My, they're my substantive questions. I, I think, <laughs> no, you know, I, I'm easing statistics. the students into the more advanced outfits, just like I'm easing them into the more advanced <laughs> knowledge. So I start out with plain right. shirts in the first year, but in the third year I move, I go all out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you get one of those Ed Hardy shirts that looks like unicorn vomit. Exactly. Maybe an enormous hat. Do you own an enormous hat? <laughs> no, no. But I, I mean, uh, it's something to consider, I guess. Yeah. Well, you can always jazz it up. One of those huge floppy top hats. I think you could come in and you could be, you could dress wanna, up the full way as slash look, look, for your guys, last I'm going to show you my shoes, which is uh, too bad for the, the, the listeners. But look, look. Oh, that's all right. We can take nice. a photo. Oh, hang on. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> those are some... Um... This is a nice, nice, eh? I mean, this that's is compensating, nice. compensating for the... This is compensating for the shirt. It is. Yeah, there you go. Oh, uh, it's compensating for something. <laughs> it's a curious piece of footwear. I'm glad we got a photo of that. No one has believed us. Anyway, now we can talk about statistics, Good. Dan, you right. sweaty, hurried man. Let's go. Well, I, I, I want to talk more about the practicalities of actually putting this paper together. You yeah. had uh, 88 co-authors. Mm. Personally, when, I, when I'm... Some of my biggest papers probably have about 10 co-authors, and that is hard. It's mm. hard to get everyone's... Uh, everyone just Tell to respond to some of the emails. Yeah. Yeah, for how, sure. Even if you ignore six of them, yeah. How did you, how did you do it? Hmm. Yeah. So this, I mean, I have to say, this is one of those papers that now the preprint is out, and and I really don't care what happens. But for me, for me, the experience was writing this paper. I have to be honest. It's it was an amazing experience. Really, really, a first time that I had like such a huge crowd of people and and also because they're all over the world so this google doc that i started um had some discussion points people added discussion points and people were on there all the time like 10 12 15 people just you know discussing stuff and they they created over over 100 pages so we we put a link somewhere to the original google doc you can take a look there's over 100 pages of discussions now this is just the stuff that people were writing about, like, should we add a point like this in the final commentary? And um, more and more people were asking permission to take a look. I think maybe there's like 150 people who took a look at certain things. So we have a set of co-authors, but not everybody said that they contributed enough to be an author. So um, there are more people who contributed somewhere in the discussion. So there was a huge group of people online discussing this stuff. And um, very interesting to see, very informative. This is really one of those moments where, you know, so many people contribute their expertise from people who've been in pharmaceutics for 30 years to PhD students who want to tell you about the last three studies they've done and, and how labor-intensive they are and why they really cannot double their their sample size. 
Um, and all these people are on there all the time, contributing, discussing. And um, so my role was basically I tried to um, guide the, the, the summary of this. So uh, my, my only sort of function in this paper was trying to channel all this discussion and summarizing it so that people who logged on the next morning would be like, well, I don't actually have to go through uh, 72 comments, but I can get the shorthand and say, well, so these are the two issues we are discussing here. We either do this or we do this, and these are the arguments. Okay, and then people come in, and there was a lot of plus oneing and sort of liking in the Google Doc. Like, yes, I agree with this point. I agree with this point. And then my role was more, oh, okay, so there's definitely a large number of people who agree with this. Let's incorporate it. So we, we had about two weeks in which people created these 100 pages of discussions, which is, I mean, really, really amazing. And then I thought, okay, so mm. if we want to move this forward, um, I have to summarize this in some way and move it to a commentary that doesn't, nobody's going to publish 100 pages of discussion about this. So so, so I uh, took a couple of days and summarized all of the main points where people said this has to be discussed. Some points were not discussed. So some people said, no, we don't really have to address this. So so then I created a summary of this. And then, yeah, this summary is, it sort of evolved. And, uh, you know, people were going through it like so many times. And, um, yeah, it was a, an incredibly interesting experience. But what I especially liked is really that you have so many people with expertise. You cannot predict who will say a smart thing. That's sort of the uh, the experience, like the lesson, you know? You you get so many really smart people from somebody who's like two, a second-year PhD or somebody from outside academia even. We have several co-authors who are not in academia. So amazing, amazing contributions all around, and uh, but also crazy. Uh, so these people are everywhere. So in the morning, I would wake yeah. up. I would incorporate all the comments that happened in the night. Then in the lunch break, I would incorporate all the comments that happened the six hours between waking up. And, and then in the evening, I would work on this. And uh, I mean, so everybody who's expecting work, yes, I'm behind. I know. And this paper is really the reason why I'm behind on like so much stuff. Yeah. Right. You sound more like a zookeeper than a co-author. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what my role was. But really, uh, so some people said, Daniel, you shouldn't write about this or you should write about this. And then they said, this is not up to me. I didn't feel so much in control of this paper as you normally have as a first author. But indeed, like a zookeeper or some, you know, like guiding <laughs> guiding this flow of comments and then saying at a certain moment, okay, well, it seems that there's uh, definitely a majority of people who agree on this or on this. And, uh, and then summarizing that and then... Everybody went through whatever I wrote and made changes, and then I just accepted all these changes. It's really like, I think, I don't know. This is a paper where n no single person wrote a single sentence. I'm pretty sure about that, which is which is really interesting. And it worked. <laughs> the the nicest thing, when we send out uh, one of the last emails to everybody, like, okay, this is the moment. We're sort of done. You have to indicate whether you want to be an author and specify your contributions. And the emails I got back, like probably like 10 or 20 emails were like, I didn't think this was going to work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it did. And everybody was amazed that this works, that you can really co-write a paper with so many people who add stuff and contribute their knowledge and such a diverse range of people who uh, share insights. It must share be insights. very engaging when something's happening all the time. As, yeah. as Dan, who's who's worked with me a lot, can attest, the moment something goes dry and I'm, I'm bored with it, um, it yeah. can be very difficult to to get re-engaged with something. Yeah. But if there are substantive changes every 
what sounds like six hours because yeah. you know you've you've probably got people further east than you and most yeah. of them and time zone wise are further west mm. um you you were going every 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 time you go back to it something interesting and substantive has probably been changed so yeah. you you can do things very fast if you know what you're going to say and uh, mm. if you never let the thread drop, and you probably didn't have an option with that, and it's no. like, yeah, I'll I'll give it a week. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, indeed, indeed. Yeah. I'm having the the exact same experience. I'm I'm co-authoring a paper with um with, with Stuart Murray, who who you know of, James, and um he's based over in California. No he's based over in California, <laughs> and we've got this incredible momentum going because basically, I'll wake up. He's put he's put some notes on on the paper from from the previous day. We'll, we'll have a quick conversation, do some work. Um, then he'll basically go to bed, and then he'll and then he'll wake up and he'll do a bit. And it's just this amazing sort of back and forth. And mm. we've just got this incredible momentum that uh, we, we've put out a paper, or put together a paper in, you know, in probably between the between the two of us plus the other co-authors in maybe about two or three weeks. What would normally take about two or three months, and we haven't actually put that much time in it. But it was that momentum that we got just from continually working yeah, on it from that the, sort of time the- zone shift. Herringtown to West Coast USA is 10 hours. Yeah, yeah. So you've got just enough time to cross over. Yep. And then you've got just enough time to cross over and talk, and then you kick it back. Yeah. And there's no waiting on anything in process. Like it's brilliant. If you're awake to someone at the same time, you're both working on it at the same time. It can be an enormously frustrating experience because they go, oh, I've got a meeting. Give me two hours. Like, fuck your two hours. <laughs> if you get the, <laughs> the the aggregate at the end of eight or ten hours of like, chipping away at it, half an hour here and then a little bit after lunch or whatever, and then you've you've got something that you can come back to. Hmm. Yeah, that's um that's effective. But the, you, you're also fortunate in the fact that Stu probably works more effectively than pretty much anyone. He's just a he's, he's a, a very <laughs> he's a very focused man. So yeah, it's uh, imagine that though. But you've got you brought your eighty seven best friends, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think you said something interesting before, Daniel. That um, quite a lot of people seem to think that only senior people can have smart things to say. Mm. James James said something interesting a few episodes ago where he had a reviewer basically say, but he's a PhD student. And to, <laughs> to, to, to which James responded, well, if there's something wrong, tell me and reject the paper. And I think we have this idea that only senior people can write this sort of these big authority statements. But mm. time and time again, we've seen that um, that's just not necessarily true. And uh, what, what percent would be PhD students on, that, on your paper, Daniel? So, sorry, what? What, what what percentage of the co-authors would actually be PhD students or more junior on the junior scale of things? I'm not I'm not completely sure. I know that there are some people who are really interested in this, uh, in our on our side, and some people actually summarized. So all this data is collected, but there were some questions that people thought were really interesting, but are going to turn into probably separate projects or separate papers. Okay. And this is one of them. And one one pe- one group, and I think this is a really important question here. So we have this sort of question, okay, indeed, who should be contributing to this discussion? And I, I'm really happy with uh, just opening it up to everyone. I mean, that's sort of my approach in all this. You know, just everybody can contribute and you, you'll be surprised who, who um, contributes. Now, I'm pretty sure that it's it's very mixed. I mean, as far as I saw, there, there are definitely people like in my stage, I'm an assistant professor, there are full professors, there are people who have been in academia for 40 years. 
and, and young people. So it's a pretty diverse mix. I know that from the data. I couldn't tell you the exact percentage. Of course. Yeah, but it's, it is very, very mixed. Um, so there's definitely a large group of uh, yeah, young scholars involved in this. And, and I think this is an interesting uh, sort of question because how are these people going to get – so in, one, in so, some way I'm sort of grateful for this, uh, how this turned out, that it worked out, in that, well, the only thing that I actually did is sort of facilitate giving other people a little bit of a voice here who have very, very important, useful things to say. So I'm sort of just channeling this and guiding this. But, uh, but I think that's really important in science. And, um, yeah, maybe in part... Uh, so I have a very anti-authoritarian upbringing. Maybe I should mention this. So my, my parents always sort of, you know, if somebody says something from an authority position, you should always doubt this. And and I had this response to this original paper because it's all these very well-known, famous people far far along in their careers, basically saying, you know, we're giving up on uh, teaching you how to do it right. Just just use this lower threshold, and and that does something to me. And then yeah, being able to. Uh, collectively with a lot of yeah all sorts of diverse voices uh, share uh, share our thoughts discuss what we think is a good uh, approach and then actually come to a one conclusion is is very interesting so yeah i mean i'm i'm always very as i mentioned before optimistic about what young people are doing but very often so i'm editor for s- some journals and I think young people, like, you know, younger scholars are doing great work most of the time. I mean, much better reviewers than senior people most of the time, in my personal experience. And in this paper, I saw this, well, I think everybody contributed very nicely. But there is, I couldn't tell you a difference between younger people or older people. I didn't know this. One of the benefits is I didn't know many of the people on the paper. So somebody could join in, in the Google Doc and have some name. And yeah, I'd be like, I don't know who you are, but you're saying <laughs> such smart things. It's amazing. And then I would Google someone. And I'd be like, oh, indeed. Yeah, you, you're really literally a second-year PhD student. I'm just impressed by some people what they do. But it's nice giving, giving everybody a voice, not knowing where they come from, and just think, huh, huh. Ah, this makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And then it's really, yeah, you're surprised. Sometimes it's somebody who has 30 years of experience. You're like, oh, that makes sense that you point out these references. But sometimes it could be it could be anyone. And, and I think that's how science should work, completely egalitarian. Everybody, if you say something smart, it should count. Um, and and I, I'm happy that this paper sort of gives a lot of smart people uh, a, 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 yeah, a chance to say something smart. Aww. You might be the most positive guest we've ever had. <laughs> well, it's offensive. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, uh, I'm sorry about it. But no, no. I mean, this was a, an extremely <laughs> positive experience. And you know, if you if you are slightly, you know, you're wondering, for being positive. What, what what should I do about science? I would say, you know, collaborate massively. And uh, you you. This makes me very optimistic. If I see this, this makes me very optimistic. So that's why I'm a very optimistic guest because I get to, you know, get to engage with all these people who are so serious about improving science and say really smart things and say, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. And it's amazing. Yeah. So so it's a fun, really, really uh, sort of unique experience. And I think a lot of people shared this. So it's, uh, you know, after after the paper was done, a lot of people sort of had this feeling of, wow, in intense Really intense because it's continuously moving. I would almost have to schedule everything else, you know, reschedule everything, free up four weeks, which is, well, uh, you can ask my oh, wife how much of my time, time I spend on this. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, thanks thanks to her for uh, 
<laughs> allowing me to to do. But yeah, no, I think that's um, you. Sh- you would almost schedule like three or four weeks just for this. But then it's an intense ride, but very gratifying. Yeah, it's quick too. Oh, it's nothing like being able to work on something for a while and have an outcome. Mm-hmm. I think I've been I've been waiting for people to send me revisions on completed documents for longer than it took you to write a paper with eighty-eight <laughs> authors. Yeah. Now, oh, I mean, I have that, many papers that, that lie said, around. I've probably taken longer to do edits by some. No, but I mean, <laughs> you're completely right that this this feeling of uh, you know enthusiasm and being in this flow that that's an important part of writing. And very often, I mean, I have some very nice papers that have been lying. Uh, you know, I have an invited uh, resubmission and it's going to look good. If we, we, if we would revise it, it would get in. But it just lies there for months and months. And we're like, yeah, I know, I know. But we don't get excited about it anymore. So what you want is sort of this rush, like, Poof! you know, go go straight ahead. And uh, yeah, that's very, yeah. Yeah, very nice. That's why writing by yourself is so satisfying if you know what you're doing. True. No, it's and, true. Um... Because you, then then you can also just keep on going. Um, but but I have to say that um, uh, one of the fun things about this paper is that um, many, many of the items... Uh, so I was proven wrong in many things that I thought starting this paper. And many people said, no, 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 this is not correct. So if I would have written this by myself, I would have written a much worse paper, worse, uh, you know, hugely worse. But I learned a lot. Uh, and uh, my, be- my beliefs about certain aspects changed quite a lot by listening to these other people. So that's also a lot of fun. Whether you have such a huge group of people, there's such diversity in opinions that uh, I think everybody sort of changes what they think about some things that uh, that are discussed. Yeah. Was there many Andy. Big, big, big disagreements for any particular points that you sort of had to mediate? Or was everyone did everyone seem to be on the same page with most things? I think... So, so there are some nice... Uh, there were some things where many people are... Uh, uh, reached agreement and and some aspects are are, are kind of nice so we, we last time we talked a lot about the difference between frequentist statistics and bayesian statistics and there on this paper there are a lot of patients and there are a lot of people with you know frequent on the more on the frequentist side and it's amazing that both of these people agreed that the original proposal was not good and there should be something better um, and we nicely navigated these differences and uh, reached agreement i think one of the main things that uh, there was disagreement about was about um, the question whether we should discuss um, this approach in the original study of getting so many uh, eminent people together and making a statement to the scientific community. And we discussed this, like, is this, you know, should we discuss this? Is this something that we should, yeah, raise? Like, is this, is this what we want? Is this how, how we want science to be? That eminent people get together, write a paper with 72 people and say, well, we are all, you know, established names and we say it should be like this. And um, uh, that's a point we didn't reach agreement about. So there are some people who really say we should have addressed this way more in our commentary, but it's not in there because we didn't reach agreement about how we should address this issue. I have to say, personally, I think I would have liked to see maybe more about it, but I didn't know how as well. How should we address this? It's a very difficult, interesting question. I think we should have more, yeah, maybe some more discussion about this. But I'm not convinced that this is the way we want to uh, share opinions. We don't want to have science by manifesto. Uh, I think we want to have science by a diverse discussion with all parties involved. And we should take a little bit more time. That's fine. 
discuss things and then and then reach agreement and that's possible you can do that you can have everybody and share opinions with everyone um, and it takes a little bit more time but then everybody has learned and realized oh wait so you come from a field where you really need this okay oh now i understand why you want this oh interesting okay so maybe maybe p-values are good maybe hypothesis testing are useless in your area i now understand where you're coming from but i would like to have seen a, a much more diverse calm discussion among scientists yeah I think it's super important because quite often when you have these groups of uh, what you would call uh, eminent researchers, they often come from similar sorts of fields. Mm. And I, I quite like this idea of separate perspectives. Um, I, I'm a co-author on a paper that's looking at this uh, super rare copy number variant, which is where in sections of the genome are repeated. But you only find this in about one in 5,000 people. So in order to actually find these people, we need to test about you know, about mm. 100,000 people, which we, which we managed to get. But if we were actually using these super stringent thresholds, then we, we, there's not enough people in Oslo for us to actually find out the, these copy number variants. Um, so to actually have... Um, that, that's one thing I don't like about these black blanket, rec- blanket recommendations is that there are so many research fields that you're simply not considering. You have yeah. all the psychophysics people going... You know, when you have blanket recommendations of, uh, oh, we need this many people, you go, no, our effects are so massive. You can't force us on us. Then you have all the people who are, yeah. who are studying rare, rare diseases going, no, 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 no. Like, we literally cannot recruit that many people. So exactly. it's just, um, you, God, it's, it's dangerous waters. Yeah. yeah mm. but that's, and- Viol- Violating that was how they caught one of the... Um- uh, one of the the guys in the uh, in original investigations with Carlisle, um, I think the, the the pressure to publish with this guy it was it, it was uh, it, it it got to him, and th- one of the reasons that they ended up rumbling the fact that these papers were essentially uh, the data was uh, essentially cut from a uh, whole cloth as it were, was the fact that there just weren't enough people in existence at a mm. small regional hospital mm. to find the data points that mm. you'd need to populate the study in the first place. Yeah. But this is an interesting question, how we should have, um, you know, how we should motivate people to do this research to begin with. Because one of the risks is if you say, well, this is the amount of evidence that we expect, then why are you going to bother collecting these very rare individuals? Even though these questions are probably really important, right? So a lot of work that's really important takes a lot of time. And yeah, there's some risk that you'll force. I mean, that, that risk is present already. Of course, I can do uh, seven uh, easy reaction time studies in my lab with a number of participants. But then actually going out and testing whether this holds in the real world, that's a lot of work. So, you know, people are already a little bit biased in the choices of the research, but this might bias it a bit more. Yeah, there are all these things to consider. And I, yeah, in our paper, we have many people from a wide range of fields that give examples of why it might make sense um, to be a bit more careful uh, about those yeah, blanket thresholds indeed. Mm. So what, how about a practical example? I mean, we're talking about a, a, a paper that's called Justify Your Alpha, colon, etc., mm. etc. Et Say I am a junior researcher who's come up with a research question. Maybe it's good, maybe it's terrible. Maybe we're not quite sure yet. Mm. How should I begin from scratch with my essentially unknown question and justify my alpha? It sounds like a game show, isn't it? Welcome mm. to <laughs> Justify Your Alpha. <laughs> Yeah. How do we how do we do that from scratch without skills or resources on our unknown problem? All right. So I think the most 
general thing that people are recommending is saying, so you can make two types of errors. You can say, you know, there's something when there's actually nothing. So type two, type mm. one error, false positive. Or you can say there's nothing when there's actually something. So that's a type two error. And if you don't have any good reason to distinguish between any of these errors, then you might say, well, let's try to minimize any type of error in my research, either in the one direction or in the other direction. So man minimize both of these and then set an alpha level and make sure that you have a certain power given the sample size you can collect, that both these errors are sort of collectively minimized. So that's one, one way you can do it. And then we cite one paper, which is just really nice read, I think, uh, where people use a cost-benefit analysis and they really try to say, so how bad would it be? What is the consequence if I say that there's, uh, you know, a, an effect in one direction when there's actually nothing? What is the cost? And in this paper, this is from Ecology, and uh, it's very nice that they can sort of quantify the cost of losing species. So they have to manage the wildlife, and they say, well, if there's a decline in a specific population of this specific bird, yeah, you know, too bad for the bird, but it doesn't really matter. There's not a lot of financial loss. And then they have the example of koalas, who are, of course, horrible creatures, but they're sort of, they look cute, but they're horrible. And actually, the koala for Australia is, and this should, this should interest both of you very much, right? <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the worth of a koala for Australia is huge. So they show that if you have some cost-benefit analysis, basically the alpha should be at one for uh, managing the koala population. You cannot, make, you cannot make a mistake going down because the cost would be so huge that you should just pretend that, you know, you have to manage wildlife for koalas all the time. You don't want to test it because the risk of an error is hugely costly. If, if the koala population goes down, it will cost Australia a huge amount of money. So alpha should be one for koalas, but for some other species that are basically less valuable, the alpha can be much lower. And that's an interesting perspective. Now, we don't have a lot of good resources for people to do this yet in psychology as well you can think of a situation where you say how much money should uh, this new educational intervention cost okay how much more improvement in grades do we see so is this worth it right so you can make these trade-offs you could do some sort of calculation here um, but there are not a lot of good tools for people and we cannot always quantify especially for vaguer uh, theoretical predictions we can't always quantify costs and benefits but we can always quantify the costs for you as a researcher. And, and maybe people can start there. Like, what's the value for you if you find this? What's the risk for you if you publish a paper and it turns out to be a fluke? And those are interesting questions. So, um, yeah, so, so there more work needs to be done. But if you don't know anything, I would say, well, start by balancing out these error rates. Why not? Um, uh, and, and sometimes you can have some guess. Like, if I publish this, it will be very impactful. Or an editor will say, this is exciting, but we that means that we also want to be a little bit more careful because so many people are going to follow up on this research. If we publish this, we want to be a little bit more careful that we don't make an error here. Yeah, so there's not a lot of very strict guidelines, but I think we can, uh, yeah, we can have a discussion about this, and I think we'll see some progress. Yeah, but this is not, it's not, a, I cannot give you like a, here, here's the how-to. I already wrote it. Here's the how-to, James. Fill in, fill in these three simple numbers and you'll get the outcome. Exactly what you want. No. New spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's, uh, this requires yeah, a little I, bit I'm more thinking. Being, like, being deliberately annoying to some degree, obviously. It's a, yeah. not a 
a, a question where you can click your fingers and come up with, well, there's a protocol for that, which no. is kind of the same level of thinking that got us here in the first place. No, but there are some... So I really think that starting with balancing error rates is a good good approach. Or you don't have to equalize them. You can say, well, but really, for me, a type 2 error rate is uh, three times less expensive than a type 1 error rate. And there's a, a paper we cite as well, much that gives some, some code. You can just fill in the numbers. You can say, well, I have so much power, more or less. That means I can have this error rate and balance it out. Um, so that's one approach that people could already start experimenting with, and it doesn't require a lot just requires you to say, so how much power do I think I have for an effect size that matters? And then, well, how more serious do I think a type 1 error is than a type 2 error? And that's an interesting thing to start working on and thinking about. And I'm sure we're pretty smart people. This is a topic we can, uh, you know, we can improve quite a lot in a quick time. Yeah. Mm. We'll definitely link to that out of that paper. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but don't you think it's sort of weird in another way to say, yeah, yeah, so how are we going to do this justification? Because we've never thought about this for the last 100 years. We've been doing mindless statistics for 100 years. We can't really fix this, Daniel, immediately. So uh, so uh, this is not a good suggestion because <laughs> don't you think it's weird? There's no, almost no justification of alpha levels. The moment that you point it out, you're like, yeah, don't you know, doesn't it feel a little bit like, uh, what are we doing? It's weird, right? This is such it's, a basic thing. We just mindlessly have been doing this for decades and decades, and now somebody says, eh, maybe we should think about this. You're like, oh, I have no, no idea where to start. How bad is that? <laughs> it's super bad, and it just it just shows you how much uh, journals and uh, the system has just been relying on these easy thresholds. Um, and I, I think down to- this is really something like in 50 years, people are going to laugh so hard about what we're doing about this specific thing. Really. 50 years from now, people look back and like, oh, my God, you remember what people were doing around 2000s? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the, ba- the bad old days of statistics. Yeah. Uh, everything becomes the bad old days. Yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's still a planet left at that point, <laughs> we could all be hiding in the, under huge towers of burned-out LCD televisions. <laughs> Huddling from the rain that's full of spiders and, you know, arguing about alpha levels and uh, why we didn't know so much. Well, on that's that my part, sunny note for the day. On that, on that note, note, on the, the planet, the <laughs> destruction of the entire planet. On the note planet, of the end of the planet. We, we are going to wrap up uh, today's episode. Um, be sure to, to listen back to um, the other episodes that, uh, that Daniel has, has featured on as well if you've liked what you've listened to today. But uh, thank you for listening and please uh, keep giving us feedback on online on our Facebook page. You can search Everything Hurts Podcast. On Twitter, we are Hurts Podcast. Uh, and also give give Daniel a follow on uh, on Twitter who is at Lakens or at Larkins. Do the, uh, the old yeah, Aussie. Yeah, come on. <laughs> you've you fucking socialism slipping. You can get uh, that it, right. It has, it has been. But thanks for thanks for listening today, and uh, we'll be back with another episode of Everything Hurts. Bye bye for now. Bye. Bye. <laughs>